Chapter 6. The Promise. Part 1. Back in England, a year had passed since the declaration from Edward that William of Normandy would take the English throne, but the country was uneasy. The king was approaching 50 years old, and it seemed certain that he would die without children. Maybe England would soon have to get used to a Norman king. The Godwin family, however, dealt with the uncertainty by extending their power even further. On Easter Monday in 1053, Godwin himself died suddenly while feasting with the king. Whilst it had been quite horrible to witness, the old earl had vomited profusely while fainting, the king was quietly pleased. He felt that his whole reign as king had been tainted by Godwin, and he was now finally rid of his cunning ways, his sneaky plans, and manipulation of the king and his court. That heavy brow and mischievous black eyes would plague him no more. However, the title of the Earl of Wessex simply went to Godwin's son Harold, who had previously been Earl of East Anglia. Edward hoped that this would mean he could choose a new earl for the lands in the east. But alas, Gaeth took it, and even the Midlands territory went to Leofwine. Both of these men were brothers of Harold. There seemed that this new generation of Godwins, the Godwin sons, were to be as powerful and irritating as their father. Then, in 1055, the old Earl of Northumbria died. He had held the job ever since King Canute appointed him, and Earl Syward had become extremely popular with the local people. His main job in these northern lands had been to keep the Scots from invading, and it was in this very task that his only son had been killed the previous year while launching an attack against the terrible Macbeth and his ambitious wife. Edward was desperate that the earldom be given to one of his own men, a loyal servant, who would do as the king instructed, even in a land so far from London. You cannot leave Northumbria to any old Englishman, implored Edith to her husband. It must go to someone that we trust, someone strong who will keep England from a Scottish invasion. Edward agreed earnestly and put forward several names of loyal men from his court. These men have no power, the Queen replied disdainfully. If you were a wise king, you would appoint my brother Tostig to the post. He knows England, he understands how to rule, even up north, and he would never disobey us. He's my brother. Edward the Confessor looked closely at his wife, noted the determination in her lined face, and sighed. He knew that Earl Harold Godwinson would surely pay him a visit tomorrow and pressure him further to appoint Tostig. The king couldn't face the fight anymore. He was too tired and wanted the issue dealt with. He told as much to Edith and watched her face fail to hide the obnoxious glee with difficulty, then went up to the king's quarters to sleep. Edward reflected as he walked slowly up the spiral staircase that maybe he was getting too old for this game. In the following months, King Edward discovered, like a boxer pushed to the corner of the ring, a steely defiance to resist the endless power of the Godwinsons. He needed more support more friends, more backup, and called on the last piece of his family that might be able to help him. Edward the Exile was living in Hungary, far, far east from England. He was the grandson of Ethelred the Unready, who had been forced to run away when King Canute invaded in 1015 and took Queen Emma and his wife. The Exile was not the son of Emma, but he still had royal blood flowing in his veins as the direct grandchild of King Ethelred. Edward wrote to the exile, and, after many months, in the spring of 1057, he arrived in England with his wife Agatha and son Edgar. They hoped to support the king in his dwindling power, but rumours soon flew that they were there to claim the throne after Edward died and maintain Ethelred's line. King Edward eagerly anticipated the young family's arrival from Hungary. It was a long journey, 
So the king's staff had prepared a feast to honour their arrival and made the beds in the grandest of the royal guest rooms. He was expectant and had even decided to wear his crown to show the significance of the occasion. Then a messenger arrived at the palace gates, his horse panting and broken from the ride, and the man's clothes torn from tree branches as he had dashed through forests to reach the king. Edward could tell at once that it was bad news. My king, said the messenger, bowing in front of Edward, I bring you the terrible account that Edward the exile has been found dead. He crossed into England yesterday, but appears to have died on his way to London. His wife and son are safe, but in hiding. King Edward dismissed the messenger and ordered the servants throw away the feast. His mind was tired again, and disappointment seemed to weigh down his very bones. Maybe, of course, this had been a terrible coincidence, but just perhaps a murder had taken place. Both Harold Godwinson and William of Normandy had known about the exile's return, and maybe they feared what his presence might do to their futures. He guessed that maybe even his wife Edith had known of the murderer's plan all along. He would probably never find out the real truth. Edward returned to his quarters, reflecting on what might become of young Edgar, now that he and the boy were the only two people in England with royal blood in their hearts. Part 2 Harold Godwinson was proud to say that he was following closely in his father's path as Earl of Wessex and top advisor to the king. He was only the second oldest of the Godwin's children, but felt no smugness that he had beaten his older brother Swain to the most powerful earldom in England. Swain had died like a hero on crusade in the Holy Land, and Harold felt the loss of his older brother every day. He had, however, been able to overpower the old king into making many more of his brother's earls. Tostig, Leofwine and Gaeth, and of course their dear sister Edith, had helped along the way by being the king's wife and queen of England. Harold Godwinson was confident that his father would have been proud of all that he had achieved. Harold Godwinson did not immediately resemble his father. Harold's hair and face were fairer than Godwin's had been, and his brow not so heavy. However, he had inherited the family trait for making cunning plans and a constant thirst for power. His eyes were that of Godwin's, small and darkest brown. Harold could charm and persuade in the same way that Godwin's had done for decades. By 1064, Harold was 42. He felt confident enough in his abilities and position to make a trip that he had wanted to go on for 11 years. His younger brother, Wolfnorth, and nephew Hakon had been prisoners in Normandy ever since that fight in 1051 between his father and the king. The two boys had fled, hadn't they all, and ended up in the mercy of William of Normandy, who was holding them for his own gain. Harold had not been especially close to Wolfnorth, but Hakon was the eldest son of Harold's oldest brother Swain, and saw it as his duty to release them. Edith approached her brother Harold when she heard of the plan. Harold, our father would be so proud of your endeavours, but I confess I'm scared. What makes you think that William will give you our brother back? Harold answered this by showing her the bag of gold and silver that he intended to take on the trip. And what of the succession? She spat. What if you trade away your highest position in England? Is that worth the rescue of the boys who fled? You know that William believes he's the rightful heir. You would do well to keep away from him. Edith swept from the chamber, leaving Harold pondering whether his sister had become even more ruthless than him. The preparations were made quietly, and Harold took a ship with just a few dedicated sailors across the channel to rescue his family. In the end, Edith had approved of the trip and Harold felt, as the sea air filled his lungs, that Godwin was looking down on him with pride. He had empowered the family, 
and now he was going to unite them. There had been no need to tell the king about this trip abroad, and Edith had agreed to distract the old man if the subject of Harold's absence came up in conversation. However, the wind gave them but one day of good weather, and on the second night of their journey, the ship was thrown into a terrible storm. The sails that had not been folded down were ripped apart by the winds, and the deck was awash with the pouring rain. Harold clutched his bag of gold tightly as he watched the sailors pour buckets of water overboard, panic in their eyes. The ship was powerless, and after several hours it was thrown ashore on a rocky beach, miles from where they'd intended to land. The Earl of Wessex crawled from his cabin, drenched, wretched, and hobbled onto the beach, illuminated in the moonlight. He heard voices shouting in French suddenly appear all around him. He was forced onto the back of a horse, and they sprinted away into the countryside, the Earl still holding his bag of gold. Harold awoke the next day in a prison cell. They could tell by the wind that they had not travelled far from the coast. A guard appeared and threw a stale baguette towards the Earl, who ate it gratefully, cursing the French. Harold's French was good enough to find out that they were now in Pontethu, a small town between Normandy and Flanders, ruled by Count Guy. Harold's spirits rose. He knew of Count Guy. He had been defeated in battle in 1057 by William of Normandy and Henry, the King of France. It was obvious, if Guy had these lands, that William had decided not to kill him and would certainly be owed a favour for such generous behaviour towards a man who tried to overthrow the Duke. Harold's theory proved correct, and after some negotiating with the Duke of Normandy, the Earl was released and summoned to Rouen, where he met with William himself. The meeting did not go well for Harold. He had managed to release his brother and nephew, but the price he paid made his skin prickle with fury. William had been not interested in the gold that Harold had brought to exchange for the prisoners. Instead, the clever duke had called a council in the town near Rouen. William had presented to the council the relics of Rouen, a small golden box containing the hand of John the Baptist, who'd been Jesus' cousin. It was the most holy object in Normandy and a gift from Christ himself. It had been held in the town for over a thousand years. Harold had been forced to promise, with his hand touching the golden box, that the English throne would be passed to William, Duke of Normandy, when Edward the Confessor died. William watched the Earl speak, and the oath seemed to hang in the silence, as if God himself were pleased. Harold took one of William's ships back to England. He had been treated as a guest of honour after the oath. He had been clothed in the finest robes, and feasted daily with the Norman royal family. And even though the crossing back to Wessex was filled with bright sunshine and a perfect breeze to sail them home, he felt that his hubris had failed the family, and he could picture perfectly his father's frown. When he returned to London the following week, he couldn't even speak to the king, who seemed to have become even more frail 